If I were to give our teaching a title, it would be What's in a Name? What's in a Name? Um, so maybe you are familiar with some famous names. As an English teacher in public school, before I started teaching in LHM, I had this unit dedicated to poetry. And we would transition from that unit uh, to focus on one of the most famous poets and playwrights of all time. And if you guess Shakespeare, you would be correct. So one year, I remember I was explaining this to one of my classes, you know, building it up, being just so genuinely thrilled to be able to study these poems with them and how we were going to discuss them. And I was explaining to them that they were going to complete this poetry project at the end where they would get to analyze different literary devices used in modern day poems or songs. And then we were going to read Romeo and Juliet. So it was going to be just such an amazing unit. And at the end of the entire class, one student raised her hand and she asked, Miss C, but like, are we ever going to read anything by Shakespeare? I responded, yeah, remember I just said we were going to read Romeo and Juliet and in a few weeks once our poetry unit is done. And part of me was a little bit frustrated and discouraged. Like here I am so excited to start the unit and already I lost them. Already they weren't paying attention. But she immediately stopped me in my discouragement train and said, oh, I thought that was written by William. I was like, oh boy, I have my work cut out for me this year. She didn't realize that William was Shakespeare's first name. Um, hence the confusion why she was wondering if we were ever going to read something by Shakespeare. But William Shakespeare, uh, in that play, Romeo and Juliet, writes these lines through uh, the character Juliet, who's there struggling with why Romeo had to be of a different last name. And, and, you know, there's just this difficulty that she's facing. And the line says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So tonight, as I was looking at um, how we could divide up these chapters, um, I thought it would be fun to look at seven rhymes, right? So I'm no Shakespeare or William, apparently, but, <laughs> but we're just going to divide up the chapter with, with seven little rhymes to help the flow going, help us to remember the importance of the covenant and the significance of the friendship that Abraham was able to share with the Lord. So those first eight verses in Genesis 17, this section from verses 1 through 8 could be titled, God Appears After 13 Years. God Appears After 13 Years. 13 years have passed since Abram responded in the flesh to try to bring about something that God had promised him. 13 years of being undone, 13 years of silence, 13 years of dealing with those consequences between his wife and the servant. So let's jump in there in verse 1 of chapter 17, and we'll read through verse 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. You can underline those words there. I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Verse 2, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, 
As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession and I will be their God. I am almighty God. God's first words to Abram in this interaction made an introduction and a declaration about his very being. By this name, El Shaddai, which is translated oftentimes to God almighty, God revealed his person and character to Abram through his name. And because of God's all-sufficiency, because God is almighty, Abram can now become Abraham, as we saw in verse 5. So again, it took 13 years of being undone so that God can make him new. That was now part of his testimony. That was no longer who Abram was, or is, better said. It was simply who he was. I love what David Guzik had to say about this portion. He says, Abram was becoming a great man of faith, but you don't make a great man of faith overnight. It takes years of work in them, years of almost mundane trusting in God, perhaps interrupted with a few spectacular encounters with the Lord. And I found that so encouraging. I, I was talking to a sister recently that sometimes you go through seasons and periods where you're like, Lord, like, where are you? You know, I want to sense you closer. And you're, you're not in sin, right? You're reading the word. You're serving him. You're, you're doing your best. And you're just like, there's nothing spectacular about this interaction. And we forget when we read the word that that was, that was true of Abram's life for 13 years. So continue seeking him, my sister. Continue to just press into him and to know that in obedience there will be a reward. And in hearing his voice in the daily mundane things, you will be blessed. Our second point covers verses 9 through 14. Verses 9 through 14. And here we see the covenant's reaffirmation through the sign of circumcision. So we have a reaffirmation through the sign of circumcision. And again, we'll pick up there in verse 9. It reads, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and and you. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised 
every male child in your generations, he who was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. Verse 13, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And again, circumcision is just this representation of what the Lord wants to do in our hearts, of taking out any flesh, that outer layer that doesn't please him. Um, there were a lot of just reasons why it was to take place at eight days old, including vitamin K and other things that happen in the body to allow there to be clotting, for this to be a safe procedure in that time where there wasn't as much medical advancements. But we see in Romans 2, verses 26 through 29, that circumcision wasn't what made the covenant a reality for Abraham and God. That covenant was established Many years ago in chapter 15, when the Lord himself walked alone through that sacrifice that Abram prepared. Remember, we saw that Abram fell asleep and it was the Lord who appeared in, in the form of fire and smoke. And he walked through that covenant and it was established. We see in verse 11 that this was to be a sign of the covenant. Um, and in, I'll read Romans 2, 26 through 29. We don't have to turn there. You could just jot it down. It says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Verse 27, And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he who is a Jew, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Again, David Guzik had this to say: those who rejected circumcision rejected the sign of the covenant. They were no friends of the covenant God made with Abraham. It wasn't that circumcision made them part of the covenant. Faith did that. But rejection of circumcision was a rejection of the covenant. And I think that so often of the different things that the Lord calls us to do in the new covenant, right? It's not that these acts that we know that are good and out of obedience, it's not that which saves us. But when we reject those, we're rejecting the signs of the covenant. Again, the covenant was already established. And it's no wonder that even though there was a lapse in the flesh, even after that covenant was established, that now the Lord was addressing that very lapse of the flesh through circumcision. No longer was his association with Hagar to be part of who he was. That was to be gone so that his covenant with the Lord could be renewed in the spirit. Sandy Adams mentioned that the only difference between Abram and Abraham is a breath. <sighs> the Holy Spirit breathing new life that the flesh may be done away with 
and a new life in the spirit may be possible. And I loved that so much because you know how in the study it encourages us to mark up the chapters in the appendix. And the sign I had for, for Abram, I did like a little line and like a circle between the A and the M, because like that's where the, the, the new name would be. And so I was just so encouraged when I saw Sandy Adams' take on what that ha was to represent, that breath of the Holy Spirit making Abram new. Our next portion uh, covers verses 15 through 22. And here we see that God's word covers even others. A lot of times when God's word comes to us, It covers our relationships with others. So God's word covers even others. So again, picking up in verse 15 through 22. Bless you. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter, rejoicing. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. Wow, what a promise. It's amazing how the Lord now specifically says that the covenant includes Sarah, and it does not include Ishmael, but it will be through Isaac, who will be born by this set time next year. In thinking of the life of Abraham, I couldn't help but remember one of our first teachings in his life where we looked at Hebrews 11. So if you're quick, let's turn there. Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, it's towards the end of the Bible. It's known as the Heroes of Faith chapter. And we'll pick up in verse 8 of Hebrews 11, and we'll read through verse 12. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, Notice who is not named there. For he waited for the city which has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. And look at verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, 
and him as good as dead were born as many stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. And again, just the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram and now renewed to Abraham that his descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky and as innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Did you notice here that God showed Abraham exactly how he was to connect with all these people? And this same connection is true for us in our relationships. For some, God is telling us to let go. Usually the case in relationships where the flesh has gotten the upper hand. When it came to Ishmael, God said, you need to let that go. And later on we'll read that he was even instructed to cast out Hagar and Ishmael because there was no room for them in the covenant because that relationship was built on the flesh. My friends, is there a relationship where the flesh has gotten the upper hand and the Lord is telling us to let go of it? For some relationships, the Lord is telling us to believe that the Lord will complete the unseen work in his time. I think of prodigals, right? And just how sometimes we get so discouraged in praying for them. Well, maybe the Lord is telling you that time is coming soon where that promise is going to be fulfilled. Would you continue believing for them? That was the case for Isaac, right? That the Lord was calling Abraham to believe that he was going to complete that work. What was especially sweet about this portion of scripture, Genesis 17, is that the only relationship that is called to enter into the covenant with Abraham was his wife. That's how special marriages are to the Lord. That the Lord has this uniqueness there where the covenant that God made with Abraham also applied to his wife, Sarah, the whole time. I mean, he changes her name here and makes it clear but this was his intention all along. So ladies, those of us who are married, let's continue to pray that the Lord would work about his covenant in both your husband and yourself. And those here tonight that aren't married, that are waiting, that are asking the Lord, be careful because whatever covenant the Lord is calling him to enter into, you want to make sure that you are willing to enter into that covenant as well. We need to be wise and make sure that the Lord is leading us and that that person that we're praying for is going to be willing to listen to the covenant of the Lord, to cast away that flesh, and to just embrace that promise that the Lord has for him. Later we'll see that there is yet another way to respond to his word for others, and that is to intercede for someone else, right? And that's what he did for Lot. He interceded, but that comes later on in the chapter. You see, the problem is at times when we've entered into a covenant with the Lord and he's called us to this higher standard or, or a deeper calling, sometimes we get frustrated when we see others not falling in line with that same covenant. And we need to remember that aside from sharing the gospel and, you know, simple, basic, foundational obedience, right? There's certain things that's like sin and no one that's a Christian is called to enter into that. But we mustn't get frustrated when others aren't involved in the same covenant relationship that the Lord has called us and our spouses to enter into. Be reminded that some 
are called to let, were called to let go of those relationships. Some were called to believe that the Lord will call them into a deeper relationship soon. And some were called to intercede for. But unfortunately, no relationships are we called to get frustrated about. <laughs> I looked. There was none in the chapter. All right. Our next section is verses 23 through 27. And the title here is, Don't Delay When God Has Said to Obey. Don't delay when God has said to obey. Verse 23. So Abram took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very same day. I wonder if he figured, let me not think about this too much. Let me just obey before I talk myself out of this. As God had said to him. Verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised at his son Ishmael. And all the men of his house born in the house, or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Notice that emphasis twice, that it was the very same day that God had spoken to him. Abraham did not delay in his obedience. And we're told that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that we're called to obey. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 15. Another cross-reference that we could jot down. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 reads, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion. Delayed obedience is total disobedience. Even when it applies to our idols. I mean children, sorry. We must deal with the flesh in our kids immediately as the Lord reveals it. There's a parenting seminar coming up this Saturday. Hopefully you signed up. If not, I'm sure those teachings will be available as well. Jumping into chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. Set up your life around where the altar is found. Set up your life around where the altar is found. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, my Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring you a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by and as much as you have come to your servant, they said, do as if as you have said. What a blessing that Abram Abraham was able to wash the feet of Jesus, 
the one who would later wash the feet of his disciples. David Guzik points out that these terebinth trees of Mamre was a significant place in Abraham's life. You see, this is where Abraham moved when he came back into the promised land from Egypt, and he built an altar there. And apparently he stayed there some time. This is where Abraham purchased a field and a cave, using it for Sarah's, Sarah's burial spot. He himself was also buried there, and his son Isaac was also buried there. But how beautiful that the place that he decided to set up camp was in a place where he had built an altar to the Lord. And it reminds me of that truth we read in Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, how our lives, our bodies are to be laid down as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. And that's what our life should be centered on, giving our lives to the Lord, offering him our bodies, saying, Lord, have your way. I will not be conformed to this world, but I would allow you to transform my mind as I offer you my life. Verses 9 through 15 of Genesis chapter 18, we're told that Sarah was called out to dispel any doubt. The Lord was willing to call her out in order to dispel her doubts. Verse 9 reads, then they said to him, where is Sarah your wife? I wonder if the reason they said this out loud was to make sure she was eavesdropping, right? So he said here in the tent. And now the Lord says, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Verse 12, therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. I love how verse 14 in this chapter, is anything too hard for the Lord, had been answered long before in verse 1 of chapter 17. Right? I am El Shaddai, Almighty God. Is anything too hard for the Almighty One? And yet so often, we'll look at circumstances in our life, situations, broken relationships, difficulties, and the Lord has to call us out. He says, why are you saying that within your heart? You see, she was too scared to say it out loud. It's almost like she knew better, right? But she thought it was safe inside her heart and in her mind to doubt the goodness and sufficiency of the Lord. And that's maybe why the Lord wanted to make sure she was eavesdropping, right? Where is Sarah? I'm going to deal with her. I'm going to let her know that I am El Shaddai just as much to Abraham as I am to her. Because isn't that the problem, right? We're convinced that he is El Shaddai for anyone and everyone else around us, right? He can surely perform that miracle for them. He can surely come through for her. But me, in my heart, yeah, okay. But the Lord is willing to call us out to dispel those doubts. 
He is El Shaddai in our personal circumstances as well. And as we wrap up these last uh, four verses, verses 16 through 19, when it comes to the unseen, continue to intercede. When it comes to the unseen, continue to intercede. We see how the Lord is going to reveal to Abraham how his wrath will be poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. And we'll see in our next study how Abram's instinct was to come closer to the Lord and stand in the gap for this city as he thought of his nephew. So we'll pick up in verse 16. It says, Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. This section always reminds me, of that promise in Psalm 25, verse 14, which reads, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. So here the Lord passed by Abraham's tent purposefully to do what Psalm 25, 14 promises, to show his secret with Abraham. The ESV translation of this verse says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Isn't that true that like friendship and inside jokes almost go hand in hand? And there's certain people that you've just shared so much history with, so many moments that almost anything that you say sparks a memory, or there's an inside joke or laughter. And that's the kind of relationship that the Lord had with Abraham, that he was able to come and share his heart with him. Look, my heart is broken for these cities, and my wrath has to be poured upon them, and I need to tell it with Abraham. Charles Spurgeon points out something very interesting in verses 19. It's a little bit long, this quote, but again, it's just so encouraging, even thinking back to how Abraham um, fulfilled and obeyed God's command even when it came to Ishmael, his 13-year-old son. Spurgeon writes, Abraham is called the friend of God. It was not merely that God was his friend. That was blessedly true. And it was a great wonder of grace. But he was honored to be called the friend of God, one with whom God could hold sweet conversations, a man after his own heart, in whom he trusted, to whom he revealed his secrets. I am afraid that there are many men of Abraham's sort in the world even now, that there are not many men of Abraham's sort in the world even now. But wherever there is such a man with whom God is familiar, he will be sure to be one who orders his household aright. If the Lord is my friend, and if I am indeed his friend, I shall wish him to be respected by my children, and I shall endeavor to dedicate my children to his service. 
I fear that the decline of family godliness, which is so sadly remarkable in these days, is the source of a great many of the crying sins of the age. The church of God at large would have been more separate from the world if the little church in each man's house had been more carefully trained for God. If you want the Lord to confide in you and to trust you with his secrets, you must see that he is able to say of you what he said of Abraham. He will command his children and his household after him. What a truth that is. So whether we have our children in our house still or not, we are commanded to make sure our household is after the Lord, especially if we want to be called his friend. So in closing, my question is, do we really know the name of the Lord? Or is he just some random poet that we easily forget, whether it's William or Shakespeare or some bard from some famous street in London somewhere? Do we know him as the all-sufficient one? El Shaddai means the omnipotent. It is the name of God in frequent use in Hebrew scriptures and generally translated the almighty. Smith's Bible Dictionary notes that by the name or in the character of El Shaddai, God was known to the patriarchs. And before the name Jehovah in its full significance was revealed as we see in Exodus 6.3. And I was just uh, recently in this chapter in Exodus, and it was such a blessing to have it tied in here. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, he tells Moses, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, as, all, as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, or Jehovah, I was not known to them. One of the things that I especially loved in the Smith Bible Dictionary is you know how in dictionaries it has like cross-references and it'll say, oh, see this other word? I loved it here because under El Shaddai it said, see God. And I just thought that was so amazing because it was referring to like the entry for God. But I was like, no, that is the command. Like see him, get to know him. That is what our cross-reference should be. So ladies, what is he revealing to us? that needs to be more fully surrendered to his sufficiency? Is there a covenant that needs to be reaffirmed? Maybe a 13-year waiting period that we're in the middle of that we need to trust in his sufficiency? Is there obedience that I am to no longer delay? A word to cover letting go or believing or interceding for another? Is there an altar that I must set my life around? A doubt he needs to dispel. An unseen event for which I am called to intercede. Will you know his name? Will you know him in that situation? Because I know this, that as you continue to study his name as Lord, where you surrender to his sufficiency, you'll realize all the sweeter who he is. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to us through your word and through your name. God, would you please forgive us for the times that we, like Sarah, laugh within ourselves, doubting your sufficiency. Lord, whatever area you're asking us is anything too hard for me. Please, God, may we answer that from our heart of hearts with a resounding no, Lord.
that everything is possible for you. So may we trust you. May we trust your heart, God, as your hand continues to work into our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. God bless you.